Well, good morning. My name is Jim. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Christ Central. Uh, we want to welcome you to our worship service. And as Pastor Daniel shared with you, Pastor Harold is currently in Asia ministering to our missionaries and as well as uh, fellow pastors out there. And this morning on my way to church, he texted me and said, Jim, I'm praying for Christ Central and you. And he's thinking of us. Uh, I hope you'll continue to pray for him uh, on his uh, trip and journey to be successful, fruitful, and a wonderful time of blessing for those there. Uh, today, we're continuing our series in James, and today's word comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, and the message is entitled, Impartial Faith. So if you have your Bibles, or if you'd like to just follow us on the screen above, I'm going to be reading from James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. This is the reading of God's word. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there, um, you stand over there or sit down at my, uh, at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy." Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Thank you, Lord, for this time and the privilege where we get a chance to worship you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, our staff and volunteers and leaders, our worship team. We thank you that we can come together as a congregation, as a church, as people, to remember such an important message of your gospel. As we read through the book of James and continue in our series, God, would you let your word be uh, planted in our heart and let it dwell richly there and may it bear fruit for your name. At this time, we give you thanks and praise to the only one who deserves it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've lived in Southern California for a while, you've heard of uh, the Calvary Chapel churches and Perhaps you might have heard the founding pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, who recently passed away and went to be with the Lord. During his many years of ministry, he had uh, led many men to become not only Christian, but also pastors as well. Uh, One of them is Greg Laurie, who currently is the leader of the Harvest Crusades that meets annually at Anaheim Stadium. Many years ago, I had a chance uh, to read a biography uh, partially written by Pastor Chuck Smith, about how all these men had come to faith. It was a book called Harvest. And it was a story of how this humble church in Costa Mesa wrestled with the hippie generation of the 60s and 70s 
And in his biography, he talks about how the almost unbelievable accounts of men with varied wild and even satanic backgrounds, with one thing in common, they were touched by the grace of God. In this book, there's a description of a situation that happened at, at Calvary Chapel where a shirtless, shoeless, barefoot, Long-haired hippie with dirty jeans walked down on a Sunday worship in the middle of one of the aisles as Pastor Chuck Smith was preaching. Now, we all know as well-mannered Christians that you don't interrupt the, the message, the preaching of God's word. And if you do, you sit in the back. But he, this young man decided to walk all the way to the front. And then, because the seats were pretty filled, he decided to just sit right there on the carpet. Right after that, the people noticed that an elder was walking down that same aisle. And during that moment, they said it was tension-filled. You could hear a pin drop as Chuck Smith tried not to focus on the man or the elder walking down, but he was trying to preach. But he couldn't help realizing that in his heart, he was afraid what might, be, what, what might happen in a few minutes. Would there be an altercation? Would there be some type of a physical uh, exchange between these two men? Would other elders or deacons need to come and escort this young man out? To many's surprise, the elder came, sat next to the young man, and the worship continued. He writes about overcoming barriers of prejudice to welcome the hippie and surfer generation that grew around Calvary Chapel. He writes, ironically, the only resistance we encountered to this move of God came from the church itself. Those from our midst who had grown up with church backgrounds, those from the, quote, straight society. The sudden infusion of rebellious youths met predictable opposition. Our challenge was to overcome what most churches had not, namely their insistence on respectability, conformity, and judgmental attitude toward anything that departed from the norm. He writes about how their biggest barrier that they had to overcome as a church during this era was the bare feet barrier. They had just installed brand new carpet throughout the church. And this became this pivotal point where the protesting, inwardly protesting church members would mention something about this group of people coming in with dirty feet. They mentioned how dirty feet would soil the carpets, and these carpets cost a lot of money. Besides, they wanted to make sure that they kept it clean. So one Sunday as he came early, he happened to come early, he noticed that someone had put up signs around the church saying, no bare feet allowed. Pastor Chuck immediately removed those signs, and then he called a meeting because he realized that the church was starting to be polarized with us and them, we and they, instead of us as one in love. When he called the board meeting, he spoke to them and he said, in a sense, it is we older established Christians who are on trial before the young people. We are the ones who told them about James 2, the passage I just read, and 1 John 4, 7, which says, Let us love one another, for love is from God. The kind of action we display today puts a question mark across our faith. When things like this happen, we have to ask ourselves, who or what is it that controls or guides our motives? If because of plush carpeting, we have to close the door to one young person who has bare feet, then I'm personally in favor of ripping out all the carpeting and have concrete floors. If because of dirty jeans we have to say to one young person, I'm sorry, you can't come into the church tonight, 
your jeans are too dirty, then I'm in favor of getting rid of the upholstered pews and let's get benches or steel chairs or something we can wash off. But let's not ever, ever close the door to anyone because of dress or the way he looks. Every generation has its own barriers to break through in order for the gospel to move forward. The question this morning for us is, what is ours? I thought about it a lot. This is my personal take on this. I know it's true for me, and I think it might be true for most of us. There are a lot of different issues that we need to overcome as a church, as, as a church with a capital C. But I think in our generation, and particularly even here at Christ Central, one of the challenges for us is that it's about comfort and familiarity. I don't think we would ever, as a church, tell anyone visiting, whether they're poor or rich, whether they're well-dressed or not, to sit on the floor at my feet or go stand over there. I think as a church, we would never say anything like against others. But I think we would guard our hearts and our space to those that we feel most comfortable and familiar versus those that are uncomfortable and unfamiliar. We can be friendly to most people. We can even have friendships and even fellowship with the people that we feel comfortable with or familiar with. And that space is reserved for those that we've come to know and we naturally gravitate toward because they're our friends. They're the people we've known for years. They're the people whose names we know. It's not opposition to change or resistance to diversity. It's a desire for comfortability as well as to find familiar space to call my church. But the church is not a comfortable place. It was never intended to be. Neither should it be my spiritual couch where I come and I feel entitled to have my own space and my own time with God. To have an impartial faith is not easy because the church is a gathering of redeemed sinners saved by grace, imperfect in many ways, both in personality and in life experiences, and yet we're called to be one family. And so to be impartial and to express a faith that honors our God is a challenge. And so the question this morning is, how do, what is impartial faith and how do we develop such a faith? I have three thoughts. It comes from the text. The first one is that impartial faith sees through God's eyes. That impartial faith sees through God's eyes. In verse 1, James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That showing impartiality is rooted in the fact that we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To unpack this, we begin to understand that the term partiality is described here as literally receiving in the face a judgment based upon outward appearance. That this is not the way we are taught and this is not the way we were received for God did not look upon us with partiality. For all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. This impartiality is fitting for the faith in Jesus Christ who is the Lord of glory. The context of this challenge was in the assembly. It was the synagogue where the Jews had gathered and and early Christians even sometimes met. The scene takes place here in a gathering of worship and instruction. And two men are described in this passage. Literally the gold-fingered, ringed man with shiny clothes and flamboyance and fashionably well-dressed. That Literally it's almost like as if he had rings on every finger. 
And then there was a poor man whose clothing was shabby and filthy. This word filthy is the same word that is used in chapter 1 of the filth of rampant wickedness that Pastor Harold had preached about. And when these two men entered, it says that they paid attention or special attention solely based upon outward appearance to the wealthy, the fine-clothed man. And they would say to him, come, sit here in a good place. To the poor man, they said, stand over there or sit at my feet, which was a, a statement of being beneath a footstool. There was a worldliness that had infiltrated and influenced the place of sacred worship. It was wrong, and yet this was the reality James and his church was facing. Like many, we've been trained through our culture to see and treat people according to their wealth, their looks, their education, their title, their fame, and their outward appearance. That sometimes we're impressed when their name follows PhD, or if they're more attractive, or if they seem to have a better personality, they're better dressed. But this is not the church. We are to see people through a new lens, where the foundational and premier standard is one of faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That this foundational lens by which we see people is not what we see outwardly, but what we see in their profession of faith and in their love for Jesus Christ. And so impartial faith begins as it sees through God's eyes. Secondly, impartial faith honors God and what God honors. Because you see through God's eyes, you begin to understand that there are things that He honors and there are only things that He should be rightful judge over. And so in verse 4 it says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This term, made distinctions, is a, is a phrase that describes judgment or discrimination guided by evil motives. That the judgment of the heart not only usurps God's authority as the sole and righteous judge, but it also reveals the negative motivations behind the judging. What James is condemning here as sin and wrong is that these people made judgments on outward appearance and they did it also with evil intentions. Why would anyone make such distinctions? Well, if you think about a rich man and a poor man, perhaps one might be that some personal gain might be received by showing favoritism to the rich. If I meet this rich man, maybe he will introduce me to more connections, a, a job, or maybe some other ways where I can increase my wealth. A poor man doesn't have those connections. I have nothing to gain from him. I'm not interested. Or perhaps it might be motivated by envy. I want to be that rich. I want to know what he knows. I want to pick his brain. I want to figure out what she did to gain such wealth. Not the poor. No one envies the poor. Or what about insecurity? That sometimes I feel better about myself when I hang out with people, people better than me. Or I put down others who are lesser than me so that I feel better about myself. 
And lastly, that this sin is evil because it plays the role of God, passing judgment on value, the value and significance of people based upon what they look like rather than who God made them to be. We've seen signs and we've learned in our culture that this is for VIPs only. This is first class seating. This is reserved seating at restaurants, at theaters, at events. Whatever the motives were, they were deemed as evil because they were judging not based upon God's truth and standards, but their own. And here, whatever justice is, we understand that justice is supposed to be a, a, a judgment based upon standards that are outside of the individual so that the person can try their best to be impartial, a fair judge. But when injustice occurs, it's usually because this law is twisted, the standard is twisted for personal gain as well as for personal agenda. We're reminded as Christians that all men are created equal by their creator, that we were created in his image, that what makes a person have value and worth is not what we can attribute to outward appearance or their performance or their accomplishments, but simply because they are made in the image of God. It has nothing to do with height, abilities, education, looks, skin color, gender, anything of those things. Those things don't matter. And it's not enough to just act or speak right or desire what is right sometimes. Because the church at the time made distinctions, trying to live by two different measures. They were divided in their conscience. And the scripture calls what they were doing as evil. We know that the heart is deceitful among all things. Who can know it? And this morning, as we think about church, not only here in Southern California, but around the world, there's a challenge. You know, one of the things that's very interesting about our greeting time is that you would get up and you would have to turn around or at least turn around and say hello to some people. And most of us, including myself, we sit in the same place. I kind of know if you're here or not by looking at certain parts of the auditorium. But when we turned around, what did you think in your heart when you looked at that person next to you, behind you, in front of you? Did you think, perhaps, I like your shirt? Wow, you're pretty, you're handsome, or, oh my God. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking, I know you, and then you, and then if you've ever done this here, I've done this, I admit it, I'll be finishing and it's kind of wrapping up and you, you hear the bumper going, but I catch eyes with someone and I don't know them. So I just keep looking. <laughs> and sometimes my biggest fear is if they ask me the question, do you remember my name? <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, that's my nightmare. I wake up in cold sweat with that. But here, this is at least people who are interested or showing interest in God and the gospel. And at most, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. The reality is that there's only one race, Adam's race, that needs only one solution, a redeemer. And that this friendship and fellowship that is created in the body of Christ is intended to be seen through one lens. And it's intended to be seen in a way that we honor what God honors. 
And thirdly, impartial faith is a humble realization of God's loving mercy toward us. In verses 5 to 13, it talks about, and it begins in verse 5 with, my beloved brothers, beloved of God. That when he thinks about the church, even though he's accusing them of something evil, he still refers to them as his beloved, God's beloved. And he sees them through that lens, my brothers. And then he reminds them of why we should see each other on common ground. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The very ones that you are, you are discriminating or showing bias against or favoritism against is the very people whom God has made rich and they are his children and they are heirs of God's kingdom. He has promised this to those who love him, but instead you have dishonored the poor man. In fact, he argues, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Are they not the ones, generally the rich class, who blaspheme the honorable name by which we were called the name of Jesus? And he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture that you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And you're convicted by the law as transgressors. What James is saying here, to level the playing field, because as soon as someone draws an accusation, the immediate response is defensiveness. I'm not a bad person. I obey God's law. I love Jesus Christ. And his argument continues, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of it all. Friend, remember that if you do everything right but come in here and then treat that man the way you did, you're a transgressor. You've sinned. It's not that you haven't kept the other ones. It's that even breaking one makes us a transgressor. We've transgressed the law of God. And so he reminds the church to speak and act because we are now judged under the law of liberty. That which the Spirit of God has set us free, that now we, we observe the law because of the freedom we have in Christ, not to try to merit anything. We can't earn our salvation as we hear and learn from the gospel. But it is this liberty now that we observe the law freely and out of gratitude and love for God and Christ. We're reminded that all have sinned as transgressors of God's law, equally deserving God's judgment, and instead we have received his mercy. That we are called now to live according to this law of liberty, and he reminds us at the end that for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, who who has shown no mercy. And here, it really begins to call us to question our heart. That how we treat others is also a reflection of what's going on in our heart and how we have also been treated by God. And he concludes with the statement that mercy triumphs over justice. We're no longer bound to try to gain favor with God through obedience of the law, for we cannot. But we realize that whether rich or poor, male or female, well-educated or not, whatever the differences may be, tall, short, 
uh, athletic or unathletic, it doesn't matter that all these differences come under the same foundation that we've all been transgressors and we've all now received mercy. And therefore, we are called to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. And we're called to do that to those who are different from us. There are people that we don't always get along with or we may even like, but we're still called to love. And I want you to hear me on that. There are sometimes people in the church, you could sit there and say, you know what, I I just don't like that guy. I get it. You don't have to be best friends. You don't have to spend every moment together, but you will love that person and honor them as a child of God. To those that require more effort to connect, there are some people in the church that you, you see and you're like, oh, so glad to see you. And then you see someone else walking down the aisle like, please don't say hi, please don't say hi. And there are times that someone starts a conversation. Have you ever met someone who starts a conversation and doesn't know how to end it? They just talk on and on and you have to make an excuse to leave the conversation. I know this is being recorded. Pastor Harold is great at this. You know, he'll be like, hey, Jim, come here. Meet this person. And he walks away. I'm like, what the? <laughs> and I was like, man, I got to learn from him. To those in our covenant community, I know that we don't sometimes like other Christians, but we are to bear with one another in love, and we are to understand that we are to love them. There are times when spouses don't like each other, but we're still called to love one another and serve one another. To become a true and genuine witness to the mercy of God, and yet even to those who are not yet believers, this is the call of every church. My question this morning is, will Christ Central ever grow to become a diverse group of believers? Will we ever have people from all economic, social, ethnic, and educational backgrounds, from different neighborhoods? This is not a question of, what if they come in? This is actually a question of, will you befriend? Will you reach out? How will Christ Central ever be diverse? By the relationships you choose to have. Who's going to invite them here? Some of them may walk off the street. Some of them may find us through internet. But most of them are invited through friends. And so, impartial faith sees through God's eyes. And as it sees through God's eyes, it honors God and honors what God honors. And it also leads us to a place of humility because we are recipients of mercy. And we are called, therefore, to treat each other with that kind of mercy and grace. But there are some things that make impartial faith difficult. Again, I have a few thoughts. What makes an impartial faith difficult is what I first call the is versus the ought. The is versus the ought. It's the reason why we like to buy name brands like Nike and Adidas versus, say, And One and Fila. (laughs) If you have those, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just saying. Generally, I remember I was at a store and I was looking at some basketball shorts and it was and one. And my son said, no. I was like, why? No. I let a teenager influence me. And sometimes we are drawn to name brands, nice things, attractive people, smart people, things that will receive good comments. Oh, I like that. That's nice. It's a tendency to judge what is good based upon outward appearance. 
even performance. As much as I hate the participation award for kids' sports, it does have a redeeming message that all participating kids have value and are to be celebrated for the participation in an athletic event. That's good. The world doesn't work that way. And the world functions mostly on a system of a meritocracy, but not with the church. The church is a place of grace where no one can merit the favor that we have found. It is under the governing power of Christ, our Redeemer and King, and we live by grace and truth. The church is a place where we are redeemed by one Lord, baptized into one faith, and share the common ground of God's grace. For without it, we would all be recipients of God's judgment and wrath. And yet we have a tendency to treat people based upon what is regular and valued outside and not always by what ought to be valued. When I first came to Christ Central in November of 2017, I was introduced to a person by the name of Diane. Diane is a transgender friend who was with us since our first worship at the multi-site at Valencia High School. She was faithful to every Sunday morning. Ten minutes before worship, she would be sitting in the middle section of the middle rows. And she was there as faithful as I knew Sunday worship was going to happen. I had never known a person who was transgender. And to be honest with you, it was uncomfortable and it was unfamiliar. It was awkward. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to talk about. I didn't know if I could ask certain questions. And when we moved to Hope, it was no longer just a walk nearby because she lived nearby Valencia High School. This was a longer walk. And without a car, it meant a longer journey. During the winter when she was sick, she was absent. There was a period of a few months when she wasn't sitting right there in the middle. And I thought, what happened? Did she leave? Did she find another church? And then she came back. And I said, where have you been? And she said, I've been sick. And I wondered, would I have visited her if I, if I knew? Later on, she said, I'd like to join a small group, but I don't have a car. I don't have internet, so I can't sign up online. Can you sign up for me? And can you see if you can find a small group that's willing to give me a ride there and back home? And then I thought, who do I ask? You see, she was welcome to Sunday worship, but she wasn't invited. And questions that I wouldn't ask of any other person, I wasn't thinking about. I was, I was actually thinking about, about Diane. Is she safe? What if this happens? Why was I not more friendly to her? Why did I never sit next to her? Why were my conversations more as a pastor than as a fellow Christian, possibly? And when I met her, I felt that it was like a test in my own heart to see if I could treat her the way I would treat anyone else here at Christ Central. Do I genuinely care for those who come to worship on a Sunday morning no matter who they are, or is it because that they're Asian, young, Christian, well-dressed, and straight. 
And so this discomfort, this challenge of the is and the ought reminds me Diane is no longer with us in worship. I don't know what happened, honestly. But I reflected on that when I was thinking about this. And I realized that without words, I passed judgment. I didn't know how to interact. And the worst thing is, I didn't know if I wanted to. Another barrier or challenge to having such impartial faith is our comfort versus the cross. We naturally gravitate toward comfort. After work, on the weekends, or vacation, it's something we look forward to. It's something that we gravitate toward. And I know that sometimes when I meet people on Sundays, I say, how was your week? And you say, I'm tired. I say the same thing. I get it. And when worship ends, where do we go? If I can be very honest with you, if I wasn't a pastor and no one knew I was a pastor, I think the first thing I would do is I would go to the coffee and donuts because those kids attack those donuts. And people, and, and there have been many times when I've gotten to the coffee place and I'm just like bending this thing like, come on, baby, give me a half a cup. <laughs> and as soon as I get my coffee and donuts, I would look for familiar faces. Who do I know? Go talk to them. And then if I, meet faith, if I catch eyes with someone I don't know, I'll go back to the coffee and donuts because that's where it's most comfortable. The unfamiliar faces are uncomfortable. I know that it's going to require me to engage and get myself to do things and say things that sometimes I don't feel like doing. There are times as a pastor and preaching that sometimes I don't want to go out there and meet with people. I want to go into a room, watch sports, eat fried foods, and take a nap. But I know that that's not what Jesus did. And that bothers me. It bothers me that the completely worthy was given for the completely unworthy. And that doesn't sit well. And that reminds me and, dis- and disrupts my desire for comfort and reminds me that the path of the cross is a path that doesn't always feel comfortable. It's not the road that many take. In fact, it's the road that was least or never taken by anyone except Jesus Christ. He did that because he loves you and he loves me. And so this comfortable path is very me-centered. But to extend yourself to people you don't know, to people you've never met before, is to train ourselves to understand that the journey of the cross means that it's not about comfortability or familiarity. It's about Christ and him living through you to extend ourselves in friendship and fellowship, to serve one another, and to go from the comfort desires to walk with Christ. This is not about just simply obligation and duty. It is a love for Jesus. It is the gospel hope that takes me from being self-centered to want to be around others. The third challenge in this impartial faith is the welcomed versus the invited. It's pretty clear to me that Christ Central is a, fair, is a very welcoming church. I've heard this from many new visitors here at Christ Central. 
They've all commented on our welcoming team. They've commented on the people who've come by and say hello. And I get it, and it's a great thing, and we celebrate that here at Christ Central. But I want us to understand that you can't choose who comes to this worship. And so we welcome everyone. But what happens after the worship and what happens Monday through Saturdays is the difference between welcomed and invited because invited is a choice. You can choose who you grab lunch with. You can choose who you go over and talk with. And therein lies the heart issue of comfort and familiarity versus the deeper fellowship of the body of Christ. Our life choice reflects what is most true and valuable to us. You can say it with your lips, but your actions speak louder than words. There are times when I I know that even at our church, uh, Pastor Daniel Penn and I are preparing for a weekend with our access ministry families, the couples. And in preparing for this, I realized that we've embraced these families and their children, and we understand, and we're trying to understand what this must be like, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around what it must be like for some of our access families. But yet I know these couples, and I've gotten to know them and even love them and their children. But what about the countless hundreds, even thousands of other families who would never step in a church because they're afraid whether they'll be accepted, whether, they, whether their kids will be loved and accepted and treated equally and fairly and loved. And I know there are times when we see differences and we just stay at a distance. This too is a challenge of what it means between welcomed and invited. There's a need to be careful. There's a need to be shrewd. There's a need to be wise. We live in a fallen world. I get it. And yet there's another sense with which we all understand that every human soul has a longing and a deep need to know that they are loved. And this is where every Christian and every church needs to look deeply and ask ourselves, are we willing to invite them into our lives? After worship... People are talking about lunch, and I don't get invited. (laughs) So invite me, please. No, I'm mostly speaking the truth here. (laughs) People are like, hey, are you going to go there? I'm like, I'm free. (laughs) No, just... It is, it is this very issue. It is not about rejecting poor people. It's not about telling people to sit at your feet. It is when the church begins to open their heart and say, I am willing to do something different and I'm willing to invest in someone different even if I don't know them and I want to get to know you. I want to just say something practically. When's the last time a married couple with kids or teenagers went to lunch with two college students? Have you? I haven't. Two college students, look for me. No. (laughs) It is the differences. We gravitate toward people and groups where it's comfortable and familiar. Aren't we all the body of Christ? Aren't we all beloved brothers and sisters? And yet we treat each other sometimes as if we're that person. In an interview in the Gospel Coalition entitled, Our Goal is Not Diversity, It's Love, 
Trevin Wax interviews a woman by the name of Trillia Nubel, who authored a book entitled United, Captured by God's Vision for Diversity. In it, she writes, diversity is about love because diversity is about people. Now, there's a quote here that I was going to read, but I just want to stop there. Diversity is about love because diversity is about people. And Trillia writes about and speaks about how she says, I don't want to give the church another thing to think about, another thing to become and do. It's just about being a people who love. And it's not that CCSC or any church, for that matter, uh, is about has to become diverse in every different category. It's, are we willing to be loving people? Do I know this God of love? Have I been so loved that I am willing to love others the same way I have been loved? Am I willing to grow and practice this love which, with which I have been so loved? And this is why the passage ends with mercy triumphs over justice. Because at the cross, both met very tragically at the cross of death. Where the judgment of God met all of our sins upon Jesus Christ. And yet he was the one who died and not us. So that it is mercy that flows into our lives. And it is this profound foundation that defines us as brothers and sisters in Christ. To which we need to extend to everyone no matter what they look like. What they dress like. What their hairstyle is like. What education they had or didn't have. And even if they're struggling with certain sins that maybe we don't struggle with. And so what can we do? A few suggestions. The first one, let the word of God dwell in us richly. It's a quote from Colossians 3.6, and it says, it says to do this, that, we, that to be able to see others as God sees them, we need to have God's word dwell in us richly or abundantly because it is the power of influence that every day we need to be in the presence of God reminding ourselves of how we have been so deeply loved forgiven and redeemed that we turn with much more grace than with judgment it reminds me who's in control it reminds me the reality of my sin and my need of a redeemer the purpose for which my life now is directed toward sharing this gospel with others And it is the joy and love of my life that I know that I've been so loved that I can turn and love others. The second one is the battle to live by the gospel. To make gospel choices. To understand that in a world that measures people on the meritocracy of their ability and performance, when you turn and you look at one another, this is not a meritocracy. It is a theocracy run by grace and truth. And this is where I hope that you and I will continue to battle and remember that we are to treat one another and treat others as we have been so treated. The battle of upholding the gospel in our lives. The level playing ground is what the gospel has given to us and I hope that we will continue to do so. Thirdly, pray for help. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will convict, remind, and send us opportunities to live in love. And it's our responsibility to listen, to confess, and to choose wisely. Because each of us will fail. We will be judgmental. We will show favoritism. We will be partial. It's not if, it's when. And when we do, 
We need to pray. We need to find God's grace and forgiveness because that's what we need. And when we pray for help, we realize I am weak and I need your strength. Fourthly, offer what you received. Remember how we have been saved. Remember how we have been loved. Daily I need to bring myself to the foot of the cross and remember that every time I think of other people and wanting to say things or be angry or whatever, I realize how I have been so received. And this passage reminds us you can't give what you don't have. This is a moment for us to reflect. Are you seeing what God sees? Are you honoring what God honors? And are you willing to live humbly to love others as you have been so loved? I want to leave you with 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for it says, and listen carefully, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. We who were poor were made rich because he who was rich became poor. That is our message. That is our life. And that is our prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for this message that comes to us from James chapter 2. And as I preach it, I'm equally convicted along with us to think about the ways that we might be partial, that we might cast judgment, even upon the very people who gather with us for Sunday worship. I pray that you would help us not to create these barriers, but instead to overcome them with the power of your love. And I pray that whoever walks through these doors, whoever comes to worship Jesus Christ in one voice, in one accord, may we be able to call them brother and sister. May we be able to open our hearts and our homes and our lives to those that are not always like us. And may we understand the greater foundation of how we have been so deeply loved, forgiven, and transformed. That we would do the same and offer the same grace to others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.